So now Jesus is uh, leaving Bethany, and he's going to take that short three-mile or so walk to Jerusalem the very next day. And um, we have in this passage, really to me, one of the most uh, interesting, one of the most phenomenal, unique um, expressions of the character of Jesus that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. And that was the way he purged the temple. It seems from the language of the Bible that he went directly to the temple. If you look there in verse 15, they come to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple. He was on a mission. Now he's, he's following up on what we read about in verse 11 where it says that on the day previous to this, he, he entered Jerusalem and into the temple and when he had looked round about upon all things. So he's observing what's taking place. He's been, he's been thinking about that through the day, through the evening, as he makes the three-mile walk back from Jerusalem to Bethany to spend the evening there in that little village. He's thinking about what he saw. He comes back the next morning. He goes into the temple, and he just unleashes his anger at what is taking place in the temple, a picture of Jesus that many people probably don't believe even exists but certainly uh, would find unusual. I've, it's just different. It's unique, as I said earlier. And so he begins to cleanse the temple. Verse 15 says he began to cast them, cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. Just absolutely overthrowing, physically overthrowing tables and physically removing people from the temple area and the place where they sold doves. Now, just a little reminder. Um, this is the second time Jesus cleansed the temple. He cleansed the temple only recorded in the Gospel of John. He cleansed the temple in the ver very early days of his ministry uh, as he began. So it's been three years ago. He came to the temple. We're not going to turn to the John and look at it. It was also at the time of the Passover, which this is the Passover three years later. When John wrote about it and the first cleansing of the temple, John said that he found those that sold oxen. Gives you a picture of this, the herd, the livestock that are in this temple area. They sold oxen and sheep and doves. And John said he made a scourge of small cords. He made a whip. And he drove them out of the temple with this whip. And another interesting thing that John wrote in the first cleansing, he said, John says that as the disciples, John being one of them, that they recalled a passage from the Psalms that says, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. They thought that described Jesus' emotion. He was, he was consumed with his zeal for God's house. So here's what you have. At the first part of Jesus' ministry, he cleansed the temple, run out the money changers. In the closing days of his ministry, he goes back to the temple, cleanses the temple a second time, runs, the, runs out the money changers. Verse 17 begins with these words. Keep your Bible open there if you would please where it says, and he taught. Let's just stop there. Because we see this periodically in the Gospels, where Jesus takes a situation 
and, begin, and explains either before he does it or after he does it. He explains what he's doing, his actions, and he refers it to an Old Testament passage. Look in verse 17. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written? And he quotes from Isaiah 56. Is it not written? My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer. Again, Jesus would often do this. He would take the scriptures. Please notice this. He would take the scriptures, the Old Testament writings, and he would apply those scriptures to current events, what was happening in their world at that moment. And I think it's a lesson for us. Let's just take this away as a part of our lesson we learned from this, and that is we need to look to God's word as the source of our wisdom and how we perceive things and how we respond to things based on the truths of the Bible. So what did Jesus quote from Isaiah in verse 17? He says, My house shall be called for all nations the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. It should be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. What a contrast and what a rebuke between what God's house was intended to be and what God's house was actually looking like. So let's begin, first of all, by looking at what they, they were doing that they shouldn't be doing, but also then what they should have been doing. He says, first of all, you've, you've made it, verse 17, a den of thieves. It's like a cave, a cave, a den where lawbreakers, thieves, dishonest criminals would be hidden in a cave, a den of thieves. They were those in the temple area that were profiting dishonestly, gaining dishonestly from the worship of God. And Jesus makes that very clear, the Gospels make that very clear in this passage. These people, criminals if you would, are taking advantage of God's people in God's house. Now you have to keep in mind that these travelers, these worshipers, these pilgrims travel great distances for many days from other countries. You remember the story in Acts chapter 8 about the Ethiopian man, the man from Africa who was in Jerusalem at the time of the feast, the Jewish feast. That's how people traveled many, many miles, hundreds of miles to come to this place. And sometimes because of that, it was impossible for them to bring their sacrificial animals, their oxen or mostly their lambs. They, so they would come and buy on the spot animals that could be purchased to use in sacrifice. It's probably true that worshipers even from nearby might have found it more convenient rather than to bring their own animal, which by the way, the Old Testament made it clear, these sacrificial animals are to be the best you have without spot or blemish. They might just find it better to come and purchase one to offer as a sacrifice there in Jerusalem. And so these traders are there and they're meeting their needs. And it really became like a spectacle, almost like, you know, a flea market, if you could kind of visualize that. And then you have money changers. Money changers take the currency that you have and they change it into local currency, local coins for the Jews. Strangers coming would have to have that. Um, 
if, if you've ever visited in, in foreign countries, uh, you've experienced dealing with money changers. And you can change currency at the airport when you get into a European country, African country, wherever you're going. There are money changers in the airport. You can exchange your dollars for local currency. Or you can go to the bank and you can, there you can probably get a more, maybe a more reliable exchange rate. Or you could go to people on the streets and uh, there would be people on the streets. And I've, I've been in countries where this is not an exaggeration. There would be 30 or 40 people lined up with paper bags full of currency. And you could go and give them your dollars and they would trade that into the currency. Now they don't do that as a service to you. They do that to make money off of you, right? Why else would they be doing that? And that's why it's smart if you ever have that occasion, go to a local and find out where to exchange your money because you may be getting ripped off and you wouldn't even know it. You, in your mind, you're trying to figure out how many, should, how many pieces of coins should I get for this American dollar. And so they're often, they're, not all of them, but often they're crooks. That's what we have in our passage here. These money changers were not providing a service. They were exploiting the worshipers. People are coming to Jerusalem on this most holy week of Passover and these people are taking advantage of them. To enter into the temple, you find this in the Old Testament, to enter into the temple, you had to pay a half shekel of a temple tax to get into the temple in local coinage. And, and you, if you read about how this was taking place and some of the trends in those days, they might mark up as much as 25% fee for exchanging your money. And so much has been written about these dishonest schemes. I'm trying to give you a picture of what's happening here in Jerusalem. And the interesting thing is that most of this, this marketing that's going on is controlled by the priests themselves. The priests control the buying and the selling. According to the law, if you were poor and you came to the temple... You didn't have to bring an animal. You could bring, you probably know the answer, you could bring a dove. And I was reading where uh, it is said that in, the, in those days, in the economy of the day, a dove would be like worth a nickel or less. But if you bought one in the temple, it could cost you 4 or $5 just for the convenience of doing that. Jesus is watching all this taking place. And another thing that occurred was you could take your lamb, you have this lamb, you've picked out the choice lamb, the best one, the best one you have to bring to an offering, but that lamb has to be approved by the priests. And if they reject your lamb, then you're forced to buy a lamb from the priests that they approve. It's kosher, if you would. It was a scam, really. By the way, it's commonly agreed that on certain uh, Passovers, there could be as many as a quarter of a million, 250,000 lambs sacrificed. So this is a money-making scheme. Jesus viewed it one day, went home and thought about it overnight. And when he comes back in, he begins to throw over tables and 
turn things upside down, physically removing people from the premises. And one of the, you know, you'd have to think, why didn't people stop him? Why couldn't they stop this one single man who is on this tirade of throwing people physically out of the temple? And Jesus was some kind of upset about it. By the way, God's plan has always been throughout the Old Testament and in current times the same. God's people in the Old Testament worshipped God in their giving. And their giving was used, the resources they brought were used for the maintenance, the upkeep of the temple, the priest, the work there. But it was never intended to be a money-making proposition. And it, but it was through the giving of God's people. But there's this profiteering, this corruption, dishonest gain that's going on in this place. And by the way, the same is true today. God's people, all of us, we worship God in our giving. It's an act of worship to God, giving Him the first part. But what we give goes to the maintenance of God's work. That's the way it's always been. One of the things I find interesting in our passage is that apparently... None of those who are attending these festivities saw anything really wrong with it. But Jesus saw things wrong with it immediately. They were making profane what God intended to be holy. Just for, uh, to help you kind of visualize what the temple looks like, we have a uh, kind of a graphic here of the, t the courts in the Herod's temple and the various courts that are found in that temple. And uh, if, you'll, if you'll look, if I'm just um, at the middle and top, you'll see what is there, the holy place. That's the holy of holies. And that's where only the high priest would go only once a year on the day of atonement. And then you have these other places outside of that. You'll have the, court, the priest's court, I can't see uh, the, the words, but I know where it is. The court of, you have the court of the priest. The court of the priest is where uh, the Jews would offer these, the priests, excuse me, would offer these sacrifices. That's where they would, right? And you can see the altar. You see the word altar there, the, the brazen altar. And you notice there's steps from that area, the court of the priest, up into the holy place. And then there were steps that go down another level, and those go down into the court of Israel. The court of Israel, only the Jewish people could go, and only men, Jewish men, could go into the court of Israel. If you go down another level, there is the court of women. Men and women could go into that court, uh, but the women could not go further where the court of Israel is or uh, where the court of the priests are. The men in the court of Israel could see the priests actually offering these sacrifices. And so from the court of the women, you go down another level to the main level, and that you'll see on a couple of places called the court of the Gentiles. Some people call it the court of nations. Anyone could go into that courtyard. It's a massive area. Tens of thousands of people could be in that area. In that area is where all this buying and selling and trading is going along. So when you think of 
corruption in the temple, it wasn't in the Holy of Holies. It was in this court of the Gentiles where all these people would congregate and they'd have all these animals that would eventually be offered as a sacrifice. Now, before we remove that, uh, I, want, I want to look at a verse of Scripture and make a, a notation there. Look in verse 16. I hope you have your, still have your Bible there where it says this. After he overthrew the tables and, and, all, and cast those people out, it says in verse 16, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. Now that's an interesting verse, and I found myself wondering exactly what that meant. And here's what I think it meant. Um, not only were people taking advantage of people, corruption in the court their courtyard, but if you'll notice the, at the very bottom, kind of to the left in the center, it's got the, does that say the golden gate? That's the eastern gate. That's the east, as you go, we talk, pointed that out another time. That's one of the ways you could go into Jerusalem. That's the wall of the city that would take you into that courtyard. And, um, and people who would come into, this, into Jerusalem from the east, they would enter there. They don't have to enter there. There are many gates around the city. But they would enter there, and maybe they have nothing to do with the worship of God. They're, not even, they're, they're carrying things that they're going to take to market. They're carrying things. They're going to go purchase things in the market. They're going to go see family and friends. Basically, they could go in that eastern gate, walk through the court of the Gentiles, walk out a different gate. It's like a shortcut. And, and Jesus would not let anybody use that area, access that area, for convenience. He said, no, you're not going to bring any kind of a vessel into this area. All of this has to do with the attitude Jesus had about what was taking place in the temple, in the house of God. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate that. So, simply put, Jesus was angry about the people's conduct, conduct there in the house of God, the temple. Those that were buying and selling in the temple, it wasn't that they were providing a service. They were disgracing this sacred place. Try to imagine if you could. All the hustle and the bustle, the, the, the animals, the exchanging of things, the negotiation. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but, but my wife and I, in numerous places, we've done it in Mexico, it's in third world countries especially, uh, in marketplaces, and it's really one of the most vivid memories, my wife will remember this, is in Jerusalem, in the old city of Jerusalem, when you walk through an area where people are selling their goods, and people are hollering at you. They want your business. They're crying out to you. They're bargaining with you. They want to sell you this. I'll meet. And they're coming up and putting their hands on you because they want your business. That's what I visualize when I see this. It's turned into a spectacle. It's turned into a circus. A bunch of people trying to profiteer, make money off of God's people and merchandising the things of God and it made Jesus angry as angry as we have ever seen him in the gospels was at this moment they were disrespecting 
God's house. That's why in John's gospel, John recorded that we remembered that passage of the Old Testament, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Now the people there were not concerned about it. They were okay with it. The disciples obviously were surprised by it. And one of the things that I find very interesting is nothing has really changed in the three years since Jesus did this in John's gospel and now three years later on another Passover, Jesus does it again. They're still dishonoring God's house. They're still promoting corruption and hypocrisy. They're still rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and Savior. So I said we're going to talk about what they were doing that they should not have been doing, and that's it. We could spend a lot of time on there. But the second thing Jesus mentioned in verse 17 is not only what they were doing, but what they should have been doing in verse 17. My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Notice, this was a quote from Isaiah. God is speaking, my house. It wasn't the Jew's house. It was God's house. His temple was his house. God's house was intended to be a place of worship. Not a place of carnival kind of atmosphere. Not a place of disruption and corruption. It was a place for worshiping God. They were profaning the temple of God. This is a good reminder, I think, for me. That that is this. God is holy. God is holy. And the temple of God was to be considered sacred. It was holy. It was a special place, not just for meeting your friends... But more importantly, it was a place for meeting with God. When I'm reading this, I'm thinking of the prayer of Samuel at the dedication of the first temple that was destroyed in Nebuchadnezzar's reign. But in that, when he built that first temple, he had this lengthy prayer. We, we're not going to turn to it today, but you'll remember some aspects of it. He was, he was saying things like, God, if your people find themselves to be in a time of pestilence, or if your people find themselves to be in a famine, or if your people are at war, or if your people have been taken captive to another place, all this is a part of Samuel's prayer. And he says, and they pray toward this place, this sacred place of prayer. Then Samuel said, please hear their prayer. And it was in that context that we have those familiar words in chapter 7 and verse 14. If my people which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. This is, their, God's house of worship was not to be a place of just exploiting people and taking advantage of people. It was to be a place of prayer and worship and seeking God. And Jesus found that it wasn't that at all. It was okay to the locals, it was okay for those who made this into a big holiday, but it wasn't okay with Jesus. 
Now I want to make an application today. The church is not the Old Testament temple. That was a different place. And by the way, that temple no longer exists. The, the temple that Solomon's built, built was destroyed by the Babylonians. They rebuilt that temple. People like Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, they rebuilt that temple. But 30 years or 40 years after this, the Romans destroyed this temple, annihilated it, crushed it, destroyed it completely. The church is not the Old Testament temple. But the church, what, we're, what we are here today, the assembly of the saints, the church, in the New Testament, don't miss this, is the house of God. It's not like the house of God, it is the house of God. 1 Timothy 3 says, the house of God, which is the church of the living God. We are the house of God. And I think there's something here that we can look at and take seriously. The, 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 the responsibility and the privilege of worship. You know, worshiping God is a meaningful and joyful occasion. Standing here this morning and singing these songs of worship is one of the most meaningful events of my week to lift my voice in the congregation of the saints to worship Almighty God. There's nothing like it at all. Worship is also, and we need to teach each other this and teach our children this, it is a sacred privilege and responsibility. And I think if especially on occasions like this when we're addressing what Jesus did here, if we think about it, I think most of us could agree. I could certainly agree to this, that worship can be too much about us, about our feelings, about our preferences, about our enjoyment. I enjoy coming to church, but worship is not about enjoyment for me. Worship is about God. Worship is about praising God. My, my children will know that, that there have been occasions over the years when we would come home from church. Of course, I have a unique perspective about what's going on from up here. But I would have talks with our children about their behavior in church, about their singing or lack of it. A parent should be concerned if their children are not worshiping God. They should be concerned if their children are distracted. I'm telling you, we're not here. We, we see our friends, our best friends in the world come here, but we're not just here for fellowship. We're here to honor God. And if we came into this place and did nothing more than just sit in His presence and we take seriously what we're doing, it'll be time well spent. And the reality is sometimes we come to church and we do a lot of other things and that most important aspect is slighted or overlooked. I find great significance in this. In Psalms it says this, Holiness becometh thine house, 
O Lord. It's a place of holiness, a place of praise and worship. His presence is with us. That's what the Bible says. Jesus said, I will be in the midst of you. He walks in our midst. It's a sacred assembly. It ought to be a place devoted to worship and seeking God. I don't do this often enough, but occasionally I'll come into this room during the week when the lights are out and no one's in here and I'll just sit somewhere in the auditorium or sit up here on, this, on this, my chair and y'all just sit here and meditate upon God and pray and worship God and think about God's goodness. This is just a building, but it's not just any building. It's the place where the church assembles. It's the place where God meets with us. And I think there's something significant, very significant, about how Jesus visited this place when he began his ministry and visited this place a few days before he was crucified. And here's the significance. I believe he was judging the place of worship and the people that were there. You see, for Israel, think with me for a moment. For Israel, the temple was like the heartbeat of the nation. Jerusalem was the capital city. The centerpiece of Jerusalem was the temple of God. And in the Old Testament, you could see God's manifested his presence with cloud and different. He would show up and people that, remember when he said the priest couldn't even enter in because of his glory that filled the temple or filled the tabernacle? It was a place of sincere and reverential worship. You say, what does that have to do with us? Peter made an interesting comment, passage, inspired word in his epistle where he said this, Judgment must begin in the, what? House of God. You know, you know, when Jesus was making his final statement before to the world, to Israel, to the nation, before he left, before he was crucified, he, he, he exposed their corrupt, insincere worship. You know why? Because... There was, I mean, the Romans occupied Israel. Anywhere you go, you'd find Roman government, corruption. You'd find those who were scamming the people, the publicans. But you know what? Jesus, Jesus didn't address all that corruption. Here's where you address corruption, in the house of God. Here's the application to me. I don't think there's anything, and this is not just something I think would fit good in a sermon. This is what I believe to the core of my being. I don't think there's anything that matters more to the health and survival of a country than what is taking place in the Lord's churches. Judgment must begin in the house of God. That's what Peter said. Are there troubling, listen, are there troubling things in our government? Absolutely. Are there troubling things in the entertainment business without doubt? In the criminal world, absolutely. In all those institutions, the media, 
But if, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think if, if we could just see what God sees, if we could, like Jesus when he walked in Jerusalem and walked through the temple, if we could see what God sees, God is not as concerned about what's happening in the government and what's happening in Hollywood as he is what's happening among his people. Because the whole world can go to pot, so to speak, but God's people need to be sincere worshipers of God. We find this in our text. God sees if there's irreverence and insincerity in his churches. He sees if there's hypocrisy and deceit. We, we somehow, it's possible for us to do this. We can, we can say, well, you know, we are a remnant and the whole world is corrupt. And, and there's so much truth in that. But that doesn't give us a pass. When Jesus walked into what was acceptable behavior, he was angry about it. I tell you, I want God to be pleased in our church. I want God to be pleased. I want our worship to be sincere and honest. This is intended, listen, the house of God is intended to be a house of prayer. Wouldn't it be interesting right now today as we're almost an hour into this meeting to find out how many people in this room have sincerely engaged with God today in worship and prayer and surrender and confessing our sin and seeking God. Because if you've not done that, you've missed the whole purpose of being here. Learning his word. I know some people think it's just a hobby horse and it's, it's just being old-fashioned, but I still believe it's good to have your Bible open in church and have a real Bible you're looking at and looking at the words and not just taking your phone out and glancing at it and looking at other things while you're doing it. Hey, we're here to seek God and look into the word of God and see if there's a message from God and do what God wants us to do. What describes your experience today in God's house? Is it a time of prayer? A time of seeking Him? A time of confessing sin and seeking forgiveness and opening your heart to Him and learning from His Word? Does that describe what being in church is about? It should. Is it not written, Jesus said in verse 17, my house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Notice verse 18. And the scribes and chief priests heard it. They heard what he said. He heard, they heard his accusation. And they fell on their face and repented and begged for forgiveness. No. The scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him. They were intimidated by him. Because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. Verse 19 says, and when even was come, he went out of the city. He finished his day. He left Jerusalem, goes out of the city, returns to Bethany. For another night of rest. I'd like for us today. Just take this as a, an opportunity. To just look 
inside our own mind and our own heart. And as, as individuals, just do sort of a, a gut check about why are we here. Church is important. Not because it's a ritual, but because it's the assembling of God's people to worship God. I know there are people who, um, because of concern for loved ones and their own health, have not made the assembly what it normally is for them, and I respect their concern about that. But preachers all over this country are concerned that people are just going to get accustomed to being sort of hit and miss about going to church. I'm telling you, assembly with God's people serious stuff. And it's not just to be here, it's to engage in worship. To love God. To focus on God. Not yourself or your interests. But on what does God want for me? How can I please God? I hope that's your focus. If you're here today and you're not saved, and only you can answer that, but if you're not saved, if you, if you don't have a relationship with God, you're missing everything. God loves you. Right within a few days from what we're reading about, Jesus went to the cross to die for you because he loves you. But knowing that won't make you a Christian. You've got to come to him in faith and believe on him and trust him as your Savior. And if you haven't done that, you ought to do that. For these people, I think we all agree, for these people, their religion had just become a sort of an activity, a, a business even, something they do occasionally because it's the thing to do. But there was no heart in it. Is your heart in this? Do you love God? Do you love worshiping God? If you're not saved, you're not sure you're saved, you ought to come to me today or come to one of us, a man or a woman, somebody, and say, look, this is really bothering me. I need to be saved. I want to make sure I'm saved. You ought to be sure. And then the rest of us, let's don't fall into that trap of being distracted by all everything else and not focusing on the main thing, which is a person, the Almighty, Jesus Christ.